May I please have your full and undivided attention? It is time for the Paranormal Rundown. Hello, this is Cedric Dankworth Smythe. I am the unexpectedly psychic butler who works with these fine gentlemen. You found your way to the Paranormal Rundown. That was extremely good of you. Tonight we bring you the ninth episode of the Paranormal Rundown. Did you ever think it would get this far? We're almost at 1,700 topics now. Father Birdsong, JJ, Dave, and Vic are still pretty darn excited about this. They're humans after all. But before we get started, I need to let Avalon Lee, little lovely Avalon Lee, say just a few words. Hello everyone, my name is Avalon Lee and Dankworth Smythe. I am the sweetest and cutest utterly evil little girl you will ever encounter. I mean, just look at these dimples, these sparkling magenta eyes, this exquisite hair made entirely of golden strands, and of course my amazing, fan-laden smile. However, I must apologize for my recent behavior. It was very, very wrong of me to imprison my father in a large Kevlar bag and hang said bag over a vat of 12.07 molarity hydrochloric acid. I owe him and the entire paranormal rundown audience a sincere apology. But just between us, it was fun, wasn't it? Hello, everybody. Um, you should have heard a 20-minute or so exposition or, or about incorruptible bodies. But you didn't because I am corruptible and I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. <laughs> and, and this is uh, the fact that you didn't hear that is 100% my fault. Let's see if we can do a quick synopsis. Uh, in it's Kentucky, okay. We love you, Vic. In Kentucky, they found a girl who's apparently found a girl, about 17, who died. Uh, her coffin was incredibly heavy. They drilled a hole to get all the water out of it. They got her out of there, and she was petrified all the way down to her clothes. Even her clothing had been petrified. And all of us sort of thought for a minute, like, hmm, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And then we started talking about other things. So we kind of moved down into the mummies in Guanajuato, where if they don't pay the rent on your grave, you get turned into a mummy for public display. And we <laughs> the bog men. We, we started talking about the bog men and the uh, oats of the ice man, both of whom apparently brought in the police because people thought they had found current bodies. Talked about Zen Buddhist monks. The Zen Buddhist monks, the guys who mummify themselves prior to death. JJ, how long does it take them to do that? It took them, I believe, it was either a one-year or a five-year process. I don't quite remember. But it was it was lengthy. And they had an extremely rigid diet during that time. Uh yeah, it was a massive undertaking, but it was, at least to them, it was an honor to also be able to be at such a high spiritual mark of nirvana 
to be able to get to that point. Well, I would think that if you were doing, if you were consuming things that were actually starting to mummify your body, I don't think you'd feel very good. Well, oh, that's, no. That's, I, that's no what way. I was, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. How in the world does one begin to mummify their body before they're dead? That, oh, that can't, they would that can't eat, be good. Certain things that would then begin to act as natural preservatives. Well, I guess it gives someone a good excuse to become an alcoholic. Wow. There you go. <laughs> and, then we, and then we also launched into how the assassination of President right. Lincoln started the entire embalming process. And then I wrapped up by actually proving um, the formula behind good and evil. But I'm just too tired to go back over yeah, that he, again. He, he, <laughs> He, he proved the formula behind good and evil, and he explicated the absolute purpose of life without any possible uh, debate. Uh, and he did that in about six minutes. I mean, you know, JJ's pretty dang good when he gets going. Uh, okay, okay. So I can't even begin to try to replicate it. I am so sorry. <laughs> hey, let's go back to this Buddhist thing for a second. Um, so I, I found this thing that said that in order to begin the self-mummification process, they adopt a diet, and I'm not going to try to pronounce its name, but it's tree eating, where they forage through forests and subsist on only tree roots, nuts, and berries, tree bark, and pine needle. So so it begins the biological preparation for mummification and eliminates any fat and muscle from the frame. Prevents future uh, future decomposition by depriving uh, naturally occurring bacteria. Now, this website is showing the picture of a mummy that I saw in Thailand. I actually saw this guy, and I don't remember it saying anything about him prepping for this, but it was this temple in Thailand that we went to, uh, and... I believe this was on Koh Samui, and at the very front of the temple, they have this glass case with this Buddhist monk mummy that's wrapped in his, like, you know, his robes, and he's wearing a pair of sunglasses. Like, you know, wrap around sort of Ray-Ban like sunglasses. And so apparently, he mummified himself. Are you still seeing his actual skin, or is he covered with something? No, no, he's not covered with something. He's he's. Uh, How yeah. long has he been dead? Uh, now you're asking me. I, I have no idea. Okay. Um, I don't think this is like a thousand years old or anything, but um, but it, well, I mean, it wasn't last week. <laughs> I mean. Somebody a lot did. of these are around 100 to 200 years old. And yeah, although that sounds you can about see, right. I mean, you can see a skull pretty much prevalent underneath the facial features. The bodies are still amazingly well-preserved for what they are. Well, the, the part of this whole thing that fascinates me is having that kind of discipline. Uh, of saying to yourself, okay, for the next five years, 
I'm going to eat trees or parts of trees. And I'm going to sit here in this one position and sooner or later, I won't even be able to move, but I'll be alive for a good portion of that. Look, I don't have anything close to that kind of commitment. I realize I don't. So what do you do to make your mind that strong? I mean, I would assume that by the time you make that commitment, you have you have years behind you of mental discipline, right? From meditation to strict diet, not diet of trees, but I mean just strict diet and meditation and specific spiritual practices that you've built up that discipline. You know, I... So, it's discipline I don't have, but yeah, because so there, there are two different states. There is Padinavana and then Nirvana. Padinavana is the state that you reach while you are alive, and it's the first step. So it's temporary, but yet it's the closest that you can essentially get. Uh, for example, the the worship, I mean, the listener to the um, the speech on Vulture Mount uh, when the Buddha held up uh, a white lotus and the guy just instantly got it and just slipped immediately into Padinavana. I would, that would be the only thing that I could think. Of. I mean, at that point, to David, what David was saying, you probably have mastered mind over body at that point or as close as you can ever possibly get that's the only thing only thing that to me would allow someone to go through that kind of a a horrible sounding process but so so what you're saying is the person behind you failed in the discipline in the diet right the person behind you jj Oh, the oh. person behind me. <laughs> yeah. oh, he's still alive. I mean, <clears throat> oh, really? He's better than that. <laughs> His eyes light up. So, so we're, we're talking. We're, we're talking That's about Chester, this, by the way. Chester is a uh, a skeleton obtained at great expense at Home Depot, and his his eyes light up. And he he's kind of not standing in the world's best posture. He kind of looks tired. But yeah. he, he looks that. like he's he's about to jump on JJ when JJ's not paying attention. <laughs> to true, yeah. I'm, I'm saying I'd, I'd keep an eye on him. Keep an eye on him. Have you read the book Siddhartha by uh, Herman Hess? No. Okay. Well, <laughs> that makes it harder. <laughs> anyway, they're they're talking about would be Buddhas. People who didn't don't quite get to be Buddhas, but they're they're on the way. They've they've got some spiritual gifts, some strength, and they're lamenting that this one guy didn't quite make it because they're talking about him being the best. You know, he and they say he would have walked on water. Okay, and and there apparently there were people who were headed toward Buddhahood who could actually in this book, Walk on Water. Anybody ever heard anything about that? 
Nope. No, I can't say that I have. Okay. <laughs> the uh, the one. So I was a I was a huge fan of world religions, and I loved Buddhism mm-hmm. and everything about it. One of the interesting facts, and then I'll shut up, is you know Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism mm-hmm. in China, he disappeared to the south. Right. Mm-hmm. He just went on the journey, and that's the last anyone heard of him. And then a couple of hundred years later, these strange people from India began to flow northward into China, espousing this new religion that they had not heard of, Buddhism. And the Chinese thought that Lao Tzu had went down into India, and they had completely misinterpreted his ideology, corrupted it into Buddhism, and they began to slaughter them as a result. And it took a lot of convincing for that to actually go away. But it's amazing the amount of demonization that Buddhists have suffered. Even in classical Ethiopic, the word for evil eye is Buddha. And that is not a coincidence. They, especially along the Silk Road, they believed that Buddhists could easily cast evil eyes on anyone that they looked at, and they were annihilated as a result. JJ, will you do me a favor um, for the audience? Can you define Ethiopic? Because sure. I'm sure we have a number of listeners who don't really know exactly what that means. Yeah, happy to. So Ethiopic is a... <sighs> southwestern semitic language it is it was spoken in in the boundaries of ethiopia and tigrinya which is the neighboring country to ethiopia and the ancient language it's purely semitic but it shares a phenomenal amount of correlation to Arabic. In fact, uh, at Harvard, in order to study Ethiopic, you either have had to have studied it before, you've had to have extensive knowledge of Hebrew, or extensive knowledge of Arabic. And that's because Arabic actually shared, they essentially took 60% of Ethiopic uh, verbs and they still use their broken uh, plurals for verbal forms to this very day. They're very close because of all the amount of interaction that they had amongst the Silk Road, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, it is a language that eventually merged with Cushitic, and it dropped all of its uh, gutturals. It used to have more gutturals than almost any other Semitic language. It had a, a soft H, a middle H, a hard H, with a H, H, H. Uh, it had three different S sounds, an S, a F, a SH, uh, and then one other, two different Ts, and then all of that normalized into one basic sound because of Cushitic. Um so, it, it, and then it's still the liturgical language of the Ethiopic Orthodox Church, and it's the language in which, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, actually preserved the vast majority 
of the pseudepigrapha because to the Ethiopic Orthodox Church, they are still holy writings. And in fact, out of all of Christendom, they have the largest canon of holy writings there is. Okay. Didn't, didn't, um, didn't the Hebrews of Ethiopia, were not they from the tribe of Dan? That is an argument that has often been made, and that is why they still claim that in the mother city of Addis Ababa, there is the Ark of the Covenant that is strictly guarded by a one priest, and it has been that way forever and a day. Is that really the Ark? Who knows? But that is the claim. Okay. Well, one person knows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Presumably. <laughs> well, he knows one way or another, right? Um, you would think so. <laughs> I, I wonder how bad the world's got to get before he decides to actually like, okay, it's time to break it out. <laughs> if they If they have survived... All the political turmoil, all the famine, and everything else that's gone wrong, I'm pretty sure it's going to take a heck of a lot more to break them. Yeah. No, that's okay. We're working on it. Oh, you and fun fact, I actually attended uh, – so the language is officially called Gez. That's what it is in the in the mother tongue. Yeah, you've talked and, about Gez, yes. Yep. And I actually took my Gez courses with – the brother of the patriarch of the Ethiopic Orthodox Church. Wow. Wow. And that was an adventure. The man looked like he stepped out of a GQ magazine every single day. It was hilarious. You mean he, he was, was a nice he was, guy, too. He was dressed beautifully, <laughs> you know, incredible suits. And oh, absolutely. Way. Highest fashion of the time. Uh-huh. No expense spared. Yeah. Huh. That's cool, though. Did he have uh, a lot of insight into the church? Was that? Uh... Oh, he did. We didn't really like. We would pick his brain every once in a while, but um, like the entire class were just filled with scholars from heck. Um, there was a, a a gentleman from Poland who knew more languages than I have even heard of. That uh, was taught by Doctor Hunergard who is, I guess if you go by records, was the second most famous um, Semitic philologist in the world. And, uh, yeah, it was. And then the class was taught in the upper right corner of the Harvard Semitic Museum and on the second floor. And in order to get to that classroom, you had to pass by irreplaceable artifacts just sitting there on display and i would just wander through those collections every single day i i used to have them all memorized because i would just sit there and stare at all of that i get to actually go to a class learning the language that probably less than 100 people in the u.s even know of all the while passing through artifacts that i would never get to see unless i was here so that'd be awesome. That's cool. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That's uh probably not the common fate of most boys from rural Tennessee. No. Uh, <laughs> the only one that I know of, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Okay. Well, it seems like we've got some um, critical mass going. Everybody seems to have their brains working, their voices working. I will uh, have Avalon add some information concerning some of the things we talked about. People like her. Um, so I'm going to get her to do some work. The monks who practice self-mummification are called Sokushinbatsu. Sokushinbatsu is also the word used for this extremely painful and lengthy process. The word literally translates to Buddhas in their very body. Traditionally, they were understood to have entered a state of exceedingly deep meditation rather than having actually died, and were still capable of granting the prayers of their worshippers. Silly Vic Hermanson, of course people like me, I'm preternaturally adorable. Plus, very few people wish to be imprisoned in Kefla bags. So, if we're going to do a roundup, what should we round up? Should I go back through the choices? Well, the one that we have, we've okay. already put off from a previous rundown, mm -hmm. is Theodicy. That is the one that always keeps coming up. So, and I, w I had the perfect story, I think, at least to help frame the conversation. Let's do that. Then let's do it. So back, back in college, there was a 400 level seminar for religion that you had to take at some point. And I took it pretty early on. I think my sophomore year, I took it. And we had to write a huge term paper, and I chose the Odyssey. And I started off that paper with an anecdote, a mythical anecdote that has stuck with me to this day. And I've actually quoted it on Southern Demonology once before, but it was a very long time ago. And they go something like this. There are two explorers off into the desert. And one day they come upon a garden, uh -huh. an immaculately maintained garden. And they are amazed. Like they're wandering through the rows and rows of vegetables and flowers and fruits. <laughs> and one of the explorers looks to the other and says, there has to be a gardener who is maintaining such perfect order in the middle of the desert. And the other one goes, well, I mean, that would make sense, but I sure don't see anybody. So the first gardener goes, okay, we just need to hide. And I bet they're out moving around at night under the cover of, uh, under the cover of darkness. And they go, okay, let's do that. So they do, and they hide out for a week. Nothing. No, no sign of any gardener whatsoever. And so the first one goes, okay, okay, that did not work. But I bet they are invisible, and that's why we've detected no presence of them. And so they round up, don't ask from where, a group of dogs, they get night vision goggles, they, they put up uh, radar everywhere they can with lasers and tripwires, and they patrol this garden for a month. Nothing. And the second guy goes, look, I told you, there is no gardener. And the first one goes, okay, okay, 
How about this? There has to be a gardener. There's just there's proof of it everywhere before us. But I would probably say that the gardener is invisible, undetectable, and unknowable. And the second explorer says, okay, that might be, but what's the difference between that and no gardener at all? Hmm. Discuss. <laughs> the garden. Yeah, it's a metaphor, of course. The garden <laughs> is the world. The garden is the world, and the 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 uh, possible gardener is God, and his and his works in the world. Correct. And there is, and you can even relate it back to the Futurama episode if you wanted to take it to be a little bit more of a positive spin on God where you have the universe of consciousness speak to Bender and say, yeah, if you just kind of let them figure it out for themselves, then they normally do that and you don't have to do anything. I think, I I don't know anything about that, that episode, I I know I'm interrupting father birdsong, but no, no, no. Give me a little bit more background on that. If you don't mind. Oh, it's just a Futurama episode. It's um, I don't even remember all of it myself. Okay. Well, go ahead, well, Father Birdsong. You were going to ask him. I think it with with the whole story and the backline in the in the garden and the gardener. Uh, I think that's a, just an astounding portrayal of faith. Mm-hmm. And and the reason why I say faith is because, you know, there's things out there that can't be explained. And some things just have to be just accepted by faith. That's like the the the, the ye old question, who created God? Well, he just we just know he, he just exists. And that is something that you have to accept ultimately by faith or bird song. Do you know who you sound like right now? Who's that? (laughs) I mean this in a a positive way. And by the way, I am not an atheist. I'm not advocating for atheism. I'm not trying to say that whatsoever, but no, you sound like, have you ever heard of Immanuel Kant? Yes. No. All right. Kant was a, a philosopher who was so he occupied both extremes. So he came at the very tail end of the enlightenment period into the romance period. However, he was the most kind of staunch advocate for logic and dryness that there ever was. However, he actually, one of his first major works was a book called on the uh, aesthetics of the beautiful and the sublime would actually which actually earned him a professorship of poetry of all things at the university of berlin i think it is and which he turned down but he was a man who would take his walks at 5 p.m every single day without fail and in fact, the t- one time that he got sick and could not make his walks, 
the village clock was off because they would set their clocks, the, the town clock, by his waltz. He was that steady. But Kant was famous for coming up with the categorical imperative. But at the end of the day, what he was thinking was that what we know of is based upon categories. So a man walking along a beach is a man, the idea of walking, what a beach is, etc. And he said there is a category for all things except for God. Okay. Well, that, anyway. that kind of makes well, sense. Also, yeah. look, I'm, I'm I can't out philosophize JJ, but I mean, there's there's the uh, <laughs> the 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 Kantian leap of faith, right? You know, where at some point one has to simply say, "I will accept this." Right. In fact, Kant said, and I kind of left off the most important part. Sorry about that. Is there's no category for God, which leaves all the more room for faith. Correct. Correct. Exactly. All right, exactly. so so help me out here, because you guys have talked about theodicy multiple times as something we need to discuss, and honestly, I haven't really thought about the term or heard the term in a long time. Maybe I it was mentioned in philosophy, I, I don't remember, but so I looked up the definition, mm-hmm. and the definition of theodicy on Webster says it's the defense of God's goodness and omnipotence in view of the existence of evil. In a world that's yeah. full of evil and pain and injustice and horror. So so what I've heard is, so far, is, hey, here's goodness, you know, does that have to be God? Is there a God that exists that made that? Um, I, I've heard from you guys so far, like a, how do we justify that there is a God, sort of, Right. But where does the evil come into this? Evil as the uh, kicker, right? It's the uh, having evil. Does that justify God's the case for God, or does it make it uh, more difficult to justify the case for God? Is that what the Odyssey is really all about? <clears throat> well, it I, is, I think yeah, it is the justification for God. And it can be taken in two different paths. The first is if there really is a God, but what it's taken for more times in theology and philosophy is the justification of God of can you actually show that there is a being of pure goodness in the face of evil. And, what, like for example, most introductory philosophy students they will, their professors will assign to them in Philosophy 101 to read the one chapter from Bratia Karamazovi, the Brothers Karamazov, on the executioner, because that sums up so perfectly the idea of evil. In many English translations of the Brothers Karamazov, the chapter that JJ just mentioned is called The Grand Inquisitor. It's often thought of as the most important chapter in all of fictional literature. If you would like to read it for yourself, there is an excellent 
free translation of the book on the Project Gutenberg website. It will be found in Book 5, Chapter 5. Much of the chapter is a long, deeply philosophical poem. Here to explain this poem in greater depth is Sparky Sweets, Ph.D. Now the Grand Inquisitor is a poem that Yvonne lays on his bro Al Yosha while they're conversating about God and mankind. Let me break it down for you. Back during the Spanish Inquisition, homies getting blazed left and right for not keeping it Catholic, but not in a good way. In short, shit is fucked up. Then out of nowhere, Jesus himself swings in the town and starts healing the sick like a boss. When the top dog in charge, the Grand Inquisitor, sees this holy shit going down, he says, oh, hell no, nah, Jesus, and throws his ass behind bars. Then he say, look, JC, why'd you gotta go and give mankind the freedom to choose between good and evil? What? What, you think humans be noble enough to make this choice themselves? Nah, blood. With that freedom, they always gonna choose evil. Man needs someone to make him do good. The worst thing you ever did was not force them to bow down to you. And that's what I do. I save them from themselves by jacking their freedom and making them bow down to me. You can find far more of Sparky Sweet's literary critique brilliance on the YouTube channel, Fugnotes. And now, we return to the gang of nerds who are still talking about God, good and evil, free will, faith, and all other topics in the nerd realm. And I think it also comes down to, um, back to the faith part, but also to a person's choice. And, and whenever I hear of the, just basically about the story that you just told, it reminds me of, uh, when, when you're talking about the garden, the gardener, it reminds me of the song of Solomon, um, to where it says, I've come into my garden, my sister, my spouse, I have prepared the sacrifice. I have prepared the banquet table, so on and so forth. But what it really boils down to is someone, just like Big said earlier, taking that leap of faith or making the choice to go down one of these paths. Ultimately, everybody's going to have to choose a path. And I think that's, in in my view, I think that's what it's all about is, is making a choice one way or the other. You can't have it both ways. Everybody's going to have to take a path at some point. Well, the most common, that's just, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say the, the most common thing that I see in the, you know, the, the core verse, the Reddit verse, the, the Mm -hmm. various universes on the internet of, you know, people who are trying to actually think through things, you know, you know, they, they take all kinds of paths, but one of the primary paths is simply saying, I just cannot bring myself to believe that a God exists that would allow something like the Holocaust or like the attack of Israel or like the, you know, the abortion of millions of babies or, you know, how could there possibly be a God that allows that sort of thing to happen on earth? Well, what the first thing we have to understand is God did not allow that. Correct. Man caused that. Mm-hmm. That That is a part of original sin. 
see, people always want to blame God for everything, but man's the one that committed the original sin. So there's always going to be that in the world. Free will is a double-edged sword. Exactly. You know, you can you can either say, I want God to protect me against all the bad things that can happen in the world, but then that sacrifices one's own will. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you would become be, you would become nothing more than a puppet that sings praises, exactly. or hides in the shadows. Right. I, I've I've heard this this argument multiple times um, in a spiritual sense, and and then from a just a sense of, especially younger people, just looking at, you know, why would God let these things happen, and. I come to over and over again the the idea that a perfect life is boring. A perfect oh, yeah. life is you're not something you learn from. If you don't have challenges in life, then you don't learn anything from it. You don't grow. You don't mature. Just like if you have a child and they don't fall and scrape their knee, they don't fail the math test, they don't have whatever experiences, you know, get turned down by their first crush. If they don't go through these experiences, they don't grow. And I have come much more in life to view the relationship of God to to us as really everything involved in that fatherly relationship, meaning we're the children that are growing up. And I don't mean growing up until we're adults. I mean, we're growing up until the day we die. Exactly. And so, you know, that makes, that's what makes the most sense to me. And yes, there are horrific things that are allowed to happen. Uh, And, Everybody, you know, it's not necessarily the person who it happens to who is the one that's learning from it. Very often, it's the family member that has to deal with the loss. It's the parent that has to deal with the loss. Uh, I've seen that. I've known people who've lost children, and it's horrible, right? But they are learning something from that. And it is a, a crucible. They're being, you know, f- they're forged. Their their soul is changing from those experiences. And without that, what are they? You know, just mm-hmm. happy? Is is life all about being happy? I don't think so. There, there are two things that I always come to mind when I'm thinking about this. One is... I mean, there's a particularly, and I don't mean this to to be unpleasant, there's a particularly nasty kind of atheist out there who is a a real, you know, in-your-face, my God, how can someone who seems to be as intelligent as you possibly believe in a God, you know, you you are a, a disgrace because of the fact that you believe in a God. And I run into these people quite quite often, and... 
they'll give me the argument of why would God allow X to happen? And the question that I've asked them over and over and over again and have yet to receive an answer is, okay, let's say that God had decided that I am no longer going to allow X to happen to men on earth. Where do you draw the line? Where, what, you know, you know, yes, I can understand Holocaust, but what about uh, cashiers who deliberately give you the wrong change? What about rapists? What about uh, child abuse? What about people who don't obey traffic laws? What parking ab- tickets. Parking tickets. <laughs> you know, what, what, where do you draw that line? Where do you say, okay, up to here is fine human behavior. After this, I as God am going to prevent it. And, well, and, and then I'll ask things like, okay, just imagine, you know, that you find yourself one day, your two-year-old is walking toward an electrical outlet with a fork. It doesn't really ha- that two-year-old doesn't really have language. And the best way you can figure out to communicate to him that you cannot do that is to pop his bottom, which I have done. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, which I have done. Well, you reach back to pop the bottom and suddenly you can't move your arm forward because God has chosen that that's the line. I'm not allowing any corporal punishment of children. You know, so <laughs> then then you're no longer a human. You're no longer a self-directed human. You're a puppet. And the reality is, if they if if he did draw a line and say, okay, the line is uh, anything less than a horrible car accident, I'll allow. But from horrible car accident up to nuclear war, I won't. Those uh-huh. things are off limits. Those things are off limits. Okay. Well, then well, we would all be complaining about falling and scraping our knees. Uh-huh. Why does God allow yeah. me to scrape Why my knee? Scrape because my our knee. <laughs> our whole scale would be thrown off, right? Well, and that, and think about it. If there's ever a system put into place, there we have gotten extremely good at, or certain people have gotten extremely good at finding the loopholes and trying to circumvent it. And uh-huh. that's probably where yeah. the vast majority of human ingenuity would fall into, is to try to get around whatever prohibitions have been set for us. Mm-hmm. Well, the what, one of the points is uh, God did draw a line. He drew the line in the, in the beginning. He told uh-huh. Adam and Eve in the garden, "Correct, you can eat of everything here except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Uh-huh. Okay, but they were deceived, and they ate. Okay, well, so here's the thing that nobody in our society today wants to deal with: there, there's consequences to everyone's actions, right? That's correct. So God said, "Okay, so from now on, this is going to happen." Uh, uh, Adam, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna work from the sweat of your brow. You're gonna deal with thistles and thorns and blah 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 blah. You know, and 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 pain in childbirth, Eve, and so on and so forth. But here's the good news, and he gives us some good news there as well. But however, to say why would God allow these things? God didn't allow them to happen. Man made them come to pass to mm-hmm. happen. So. Well, I mean, to be fair, he did allow them to happen, 
because he allowed, I mean, he allowed he the, has human, the ability to stop any of it. Right, but he allowed he, the humans well, to exercise free, free will. will. Yes. Yeah, he allowed it to happen because of consequences to their actions. Mm-hmm. And That's there are cases, down. I strongly believe, where God does intervene. God oh, yes, does decide, absolutely. I'm not going to let this happen. This is right. where we talked about the idea of, and I know that's for another discussion, but the idea of the purpose of possession. Oh, yeah. God yeah. allows it to happen. And when it's time, he ensures that it stops happening. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, God does have his thumb on the pulse of things going, well, okay, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, I mean, without free will and the ability to cause terrible things to happen, then we're all still just five year olds in a playpen where we can't hurt ourselves. And that's Absolutely. not. I don't think that's the way God intended us to live. I agree. Absolutely. But the idea of evil. Now, bad things happening to me are not necessarily evil. So Correct. when when this says evil evil i i view like the bad stuff mm-hmm. right and and i find that you know not to harp on it but my experience did the opposite for me the evil that i experienced threw me towards god it was yeah. literally if this evil exists if it is real then why not God? There has to be a counterbalance to this evil. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it pushed me towards God. Mm-hmm. And I, I think God allowed that to happen for that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you, when you speak of evil, most people just lump it into one category. But mm-hmm. to me, there has always been two types of evil. There is moral evil, which typically stem out of selfishness, ignorance, or something along the lines. But rarely is it the most, never is it rooted in like a spirit of true destructiveness. It will cause pure destructiveness, but that's not kind of the the root all, end all. And then there is infernal evil. And infernal evil is there. It is, it is only rooted in destruction. It is there to corrupt, to filthify, to putrefy, whatever other ifies you want to throw in there. And to me, those are vastly different in nature. Yeah, that infernal evil is all about destruction. Absolutely. Destruction... And like you say, corruption. But, uh, yeah, I agree. And we we cannot negate the fact, guys, that some people are just damn mean. Yes, they are. Yeah. Father Mike, so, can you get a little closer to your, to your mic? Yes, I can. Right. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. But, yeah, some folks are just mean, man. I mean... Some folks exemplify evil just because they're just nasty people. I look at JJ. I'm 
forever, I don't know, the word's not contaminated, but I can't think of anything in the world in terms of evil, in terms of human potential, in terms of human life, without going back to the time when I was working in these hospitals in Houston. You know, yeah. everything takes me back to that time because it's the, I was working in places where you were seeing the raw, unfiltered humanity. You know, I mean, there, there's, there's no filter between yourself and what you were seeing. And I worked at MD Anderson until I burned out, which was about 14 months. That was all I could take. You know, when you're, when you're working in a place where everybody you take care of dies, it, it, it just, your, your brain checks out. Your mind says, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to mm-hmm. be a part of this anymore. I'm, I'm just yeah. too depressed. And that's why that's why Josh doesn't work on an ambulance anymore. He used to transport patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, he 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 said, I got tired of folks dying on me all the time. Right. So he knows what I'm talking about. I mean, he, oh, he's, yeah. he's there. You he worked as hard as he could. He did everything he could possibly do to, to save this patient. And a lot of times you just can't save them. There's nothing you can mm-hmm. do. And the the part that was that stuck in my mind the most wasn't the ER. I mean, I saw a lot of things in the ER. It wasn't OR. It was working on the pediatric cancer ward at MD Anderson. Mm. And you would see these kids who they're going to die. I mean, it's a five or six or seven year old little boy, little girl, you know, sweet, kind, funny, uh, just like any other kid. And, you know, bone marrow transplant, bald, you know, loss of body weight all this kind of stuff. The children, for the most part, they would seem to come to a, an understanding that, okay, I'm, I'm going to die. I don't really like that idea, but, I, but I'm going to die, and I'm, I'm going to live my life the best I can before I do die. It was the parents who couldn't handle this. The parents would get so angry well, first off, both with us for not being able to cure the child and with God for putting them through this. And I can't tell you how many conversations, and I'm going to I'm going to use language that I don't normally use here, but I can't tell you how many conversations where I've heard something like, God's nothing but a motherfucker. How could he do this? I've heard this over and over and over again. And... Sometimes the parents were not particularly careful about when they said this and the children heard it Mm. and and the children would turn into protectors and comforters at that point. Okay. And and they would say things like, you know, don't be so sad, mom. Don't be so sad, daddy. I'm, you know, I'm still here and I'm going to be okay. And I, I understood the, point of absolute emotional bereftness. Is that a word, JJ? (laughs) You know, you you know, you know, that that they were good to me (laughs) that they were going through, but I never, ever got over the, the quiet courage of these children. And I, and I, and I know this isn't, you know, directly hitting that, that point of evil, but, these children were not angry at God. Mm-mm. They were, there was a, they were understanding that 
they were dealt a deck of cards that gave them a short life, but they were not angry with God. The parents often were. That was probably a totally useless thing to say. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I would say that uh, many of those parents would consider that to be pure evil. Oh, yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. Right. That mm-hmm. that experience, pure evil. And they it it's almost like what you're saying is, is those children have been given a a very specific grace from God to weather that experience, you know, to, to be able to, to take it that way. And maybe it's because they're young and they're, they're able to handle things that way, or maybe it is, uh, it is sort of a a gift from God to be able to, you know, not fall apart at the end of it. Part of it is we adults have a lot of baggage too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. So, where, where, where am I headed right now? Yeah, it's an anecdotal too. story, and I've heard it through various magazines. And but I have also seen this exact dynamic: child, say a little girl, she's six years old, aplastic anemia, uh, one of the rare leukemias. She needs a bone marrow transplant. And there's a sibling who's capable of giving that bone marrow transplant. So the way you do a bone marrow transplant is you, or one of the ways they do it is they, they irradiate the body. They are eliminating your bone marrow. And then they're transplanting in clean, fresh bone marrow. And most of the time that's going to take. I remember seeing a doctor and parents talking to a slightly older brother, say eight. And they're saying very innocent things to him. Like, listen, um, you know, you, you love your sister, right? Oh yeah. I love my sister. Okay. Well, we need to ask you to do her a very big favor. We need you to give up a part of your body, your bone marrow. that didn't even know what bone marrow was in order to let her have new bone marrow and to survive. And the, the child would say, I think, I don't know if you've ever seen that very thoughtful look on the face of a little kid, <laughs> you know, of, yeah. and they'll say, eh, okay, you, you can do that. And so I can remember seeing them set this child up. And at some point, this older child said, well, okay, now that I'm all set up, when do I die? And in the mind of the child, they had not made the connection that this was a survivable experience that he was going through, mm. you know, that he was going to die. And they they'd accepted this in their mind. You know, I'll die. My sister will live. And so where does a child learn that kind of selflessness? That kind of innocence, that kind of innocence, you know, that kind of, yeah, you know, I'm willing to give my life to save my sister. I'm being very maudlin tonight. I know. (laughs) Well, I, I think, I think that in itself fulfills the words of Christ. Yes, I agree with you. When he said, and and he reminded us, unless we have the faith of a little child, Mm -hmm. that 
that childlike faith that I believe daddy and I know daddy's going to make sure everything's okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> true, real faith. It's very hard for many people to maintain that faith throughout their life. Yeah. It's yeah. almost impossible. Very, very difficult. I guess. But to I've... think that. Go ahead. Sorry. Did... Oh. You go. I, I, I was just going to. No, go ahead, JJ. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I've, uh, I have bummed myself out thoroughly now. And um, I think it's time for a topic change. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, no, that's fair. I'm sitting here crying, JJ. Okay. So I apologize. I, I feel myself going down that path, and I don't want to do that. Okay. <laughs> well, that is absolutely the right thing to do during the paranormal rundown. If you're feeling, look, this should not be something that's psychologically damaging to anybody. Um, no, this is, this is. <laughs> it's sad, but it's a positive thing all at the same time. I mean, it's good. Well, the one the one thing that I we haven't really heard yet, and I would love to hear, is a man of the cloth response to the question of God and evil. I'm disqualified. As um, am I. So <laughs> Not to put you on the spot, Father Mike, but no, no. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a great question, and it's a question that deserves to be answered. Um, but I mean, I can't imagine but, the number but, of times that you have had parishioners and others come up to you and ask you these horribly impossible questions, coming right off the cuff, JJ. Uh, uh, because it, it it is a question that will take you back if you're not prepared for it. Uh, but I, I think it, I think it boils down to, um, well, as a matter of fact, I was listening to one of the older episodes today in the, in the words antichrist came up. Um, to come to the point of God in evil, I would I would reckon it as part of being anti God or anti Christ. Uh, for instance, for instance, I mean everything was was good until um, Lucifer fell to pride, right? Mm -hmm. And but he was. He was the he was the greatest creation at that time. He was he was the light bearer, but he allowed pride to enter into his heart, and and that just basically flies in the face of God and who He is, because God cares about all His creations, and uh, but I would say. Anything evil, per se, is against the love of God. I mean, if you, if, if, if you think about it, everything evil defies the love of God. If you stop and think about it, think about who God is, what he is, 
um, everything that he's about, the the good, the light, the the uh, as Christ talks about the salt, the preservation of all mankind, of all his creations, even even to when he said, "Let there be light." Everything was good. The scripture tells us that he is the father of light. He is the giver of all good gifts unto man. And anything that defies that is the total opposite and can be considered evil. Now, that's just an answer right off the cuff, but we can dive deeper in that later on. Well, I, I, I think the only if place... If any of that made any sense. It makes perfect sense. I mean, the, the only place we haven't gone is, you know, kind of the, the answer of God to Job of, you know, why, 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 why? And the answer is, you know, were you there when I, you know, laid the foundation of the earth? Were you there when I built right, the universe? Right. Were you there when all exactly. of these things? So who knows what the plan of God is for us? Period. You know, I, I somehow have this feeling inside. And it's a very positive feeling, JJ. If, since you're you're feeling down, that God has far more planned for us than we can even begin to understand. And I agree with that. You know, and that the um, you know perhaps one of the purposes of going through this pain experiencing evil, experiencing loss, experiencing those things that we do is to prepare us for whatever it is that God has in store. Um, and we don't understand very much at all about the universe, really. I just assume, and, and I've come to this over many years, and I, it's not something that is a you know, great intellectual leap or anything, that God has created a universe that we don't fully understand and there's a reason for the things that happen, and that may be a reason we simply can't perceive right now. Even the well, things so, we do understand, even the things we do understand about society, about science, about social interactions, we still can't see all of those things from a big-picture view. Mm -hmm. And the suffering that one person has from an exposure to evil has a ripple effect throughout the entire organism that is mankind. It affects the people around them. It affects the things that they say and do, which can have broader effects with the people they work with, the people they see at a Starbucks, the people they... Anything that they do is affected by their experiences. And you know, short of some AI running on massive quantum computers, you can't calculate all of the possible impacts that of the good that can come out of some evil event that affects somebody in a bad way. Okay. Anybody have an objection to moving on to another topic? Not no, let's move on. Not at all. Okay. All right, so we have uh, lighter topics in the rundown backlog. We have uh, 
brain in a Bob vat. Larson changing for charging for exorcisms. <laughs> we have psychic defenses, avatars in relation to Malachi Martin, and of course, the brain in a vat. Well, I'm interested. You, uh, I need an education on brains in a vat. Okay. <laughs> JJ, you want to? Who's going to start with the brains in a vat stuff? I would love to, honestly. I would love for you to also. Absolutely. So, also called Maxwell's Demon. It is a philosophical thought experiment. Well, hold on. I'm going to write this down where I can. Maxwell's Demon? Yes. Huh? Where. Please excuse this impertinent. But informationally important interruption. As I am a member of the Dankworth Smythe family, I am powerfully psychic. It's in our blood. Any blood, we are able to make our own. Anyway, JJ is about to discuss the Cartesian philosophical concept of the evil demon, the deus deceptor, or the evil genius. Descartes imagined a situation in which a fully malevolent god, or an evil demon, of, quote, Utmost power and cunning has employed all his energies in order to deceive me. Unquote. JJ actually expounds on this famous conjecture with the ineffable skill, power, and clarity of a true and gifted philosopher. Perhaps he is a righteous dude also. Let's make him happy and refer to him, in Latin, as a vir eustus. However, he is a bit off the bullseye in his use of the term, Maxwell's demon. J.J. Avalon Liam Dankworth Smite here. I'm not sure we have previously spoken directly, but that time has come. Lucky you. The term, Maxwell's Demon, actually refers to a thought experiment devised by James Clark Maxwell in 1867. In that thought experiment Maxwell imagined a box, filled with an unnamed gas, and divided into two chambers. In the dividing element, or wall between the chambers there is a small massless door that is controlled by, you guessed it, Maxwell's demon. This demon has one purpose, and that is to violate the second law of thermodynamics. That law states, essentially, that the state of entropy within any closed system will increase over time without the introduction of additional work or energy. But our demon, let's call him Spanky, is wicked fast, tricky, and infinitely responsive. All the kids say he's a righteous dude. Our demon can open the door to allow only fast-moving gas molecules to enter one of the chambers, then close that door, quick as a possessed quantum bunny. That's very quick. He can also open the door to allow slow-moving molecules to enter the other chamber. Over time the chamber with fast molecules will become hotter. The chamber with slow molecules will become cooler. The overall entropy or disorder of the system will decrease, and as the door is massless, no work has been performed. Presto Chango, the second law of thermodynamics has been violated. Three cheers and a tiger for Spanky the Demon. Now, let's get back to brains and vats. I hope you have enjoyed this physics educational moment for philosophers, with your ever so adorable host, Avalon Leanne Dankworth Smythe. It's essentially... And this is why, well, besides not liking Keanu Reeves, and that's probably going to earn me hatred more than anything else, <laughs> but this is 
the story of the Matrix. This is okay. where they they pilfered it and they watered it down and they made it an action film, which is fine, I guess. But the whole idea is, what if you are nothing more than a brain in a jar? Okay. And a demon is summoned forth and it is zapping your brain with all of the sensory information to make you believe that you are actually in a human body, that you are alive and you are experiencing the world around you the way that you are. Hmm? At the end of the day, would that make you any less of a real person or not? And this has actually been kind of updated to a, a very real scientific question of, are we living in a matrix? In, in a, a simulation. simulation. Yep. Okay. Would there really be any difference between living in a simulation and being a brain in the jar? Because you would have no idea as to the quote-unquote true reality that is out there. And you're, the only way in which you can interact with the world is by, is by what you experience. And in fact, this feeds heavily into postmodern philosophy, especially deconstructive postmodern philosophy. And the idea started off pretty simple. It was actually, it was born from literary criticism, where let's say that there's an author who wrote a very famous book and then a fan had a question about it and they posited a hypothesis and then the author comes up and goes no 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 the hypothesis is completely wrong the way that it was is like this is the author's viewpoint any more valid than the people who read that book. And then this gets to the nature when it gets imported. It was imported into art, mm -hmm. and then it was imported into philosophy. Uh -huh. And philosophy being the first knowledge, meaning that if you believe the Heideggerian view, if, you know, philosophy is the trunk of the tree of knowledge. And then every discipline, whether it be medicine, science, whatever, springs off from that trunk. And philosophy cannot do what the specialized branches can. It can never solve two plus two. It can never cure a person. However, when a branch needs to evaluate itself, it can never do that. It must rely upon its host in order to help answer these big questions. Where in the holy world was I going with that thought? I, I don't know, but I mean, that, <clears throat> I mean, you got to understand, JJ, that I'm, in my heart of hearts, I, I hold a 
true hatred toward postmodern philosophy. And oh, I, that's <laughs> where I was going with it. Thank you. you know, I mean, I mean, you, you, I, I hate postmodern philosophy. I guess, but what do I hate as much as that? I don't know. Uh, I, I have to think a little bit. Uh, but I personally think that many of the issues of the world come from the fact that postmodern philosophers have been allowed off their chain. <laughs> I, I love postmodern philosophy. I revel and delight in it more than I probably ever should. And that and that is absolutely the way I would hope you would feel. Um because <laughs> that means we can talk. <laughs> uh, in fact, the reason why is uh so when I was in college uh -huh. I had two different majors. I was a religion major and a philosophy major. Mm -hmm. mm. Meaning that I am no way qualified to do anything in the real world, but yet I still love. <laughs> and my college had this very specific <coughs> type of program called a senior fellowship. Uh -huh. And essentially, you got to abandon... 70% of your courses, and you spent all of that time, you picked a, a mentor, which I did, and you spend all of that time conferring with your mentors and writing a major paper. And at the time, I was completely, who here has heard of Paulus Stillick? I have. Paulus Stillick is one of the three great Protestant theologians of mm -hmm. the 20th century, mm -hmm. along with Karl Barth and Rudolf Bultmann. Tillich is also probably the greatest pervert that has <laughs> lived in a very long time. He is a man that was rumored to have cheated on his wife on their wedding night. And would actually, when he taught classes, he would come up to a young lady that was wearing a very low-cut shirt, stand straight in front of her, and just would lecture while peering down at her cleavage the entire time. And would never budge a muscle besides to look straight at her. But anyway, his death mask is actually in Harvard Divinity, the Andover Harvard Theological Library. And I got to see a lot of his personal notes. And it was really cool because he did get to teach there at the very end. But Tillich was, he was famous for his eloquence and for his systematic theologies. Uh -huh. And I was completely in love with his writings because they were, they were extremely beautiful. At the same time, on my philosophy side, I was studying Derrida, Jacques, okay, mm -hmm. Arch, I mean, and the whole rest of them. The, the, the whole I'm, depressing side of things. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I completely focused on deconstructive postmodernism. Oh, boy. And I wanted to marry systematic theology with postmodernism. Wow. Okay. Well, and I, that, think, I mean, I, you know, look, JJ, you're just a guy with no ambition. It was the arrogance of youth. It really was. And yeah, was but, you, but you had some ambition the there. Time. Yeah, it was. Are you it, saying you weren't successful? I 
I, I bet I he was partially successful. That paper ever since, like since then. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Due to a computer crash and an early virus, and lending out my one hard copy to a colleague out in Harvard and never got it back. Oh, I don't man. honestly even remember what the heck I wrote about. Harvard mm-hmm. guys do that too, huh? They just take your crap and they never give it back to you. Pretty much, <laughs> it, it happened more than once. But um, but my my whole point is is that I think there is a root idea of. And I actually agree with that there is no, it's not that there is no metaphysical truth, but it's the fact that we can't know it, at least in our current existence. Okay. There are small T's of truth, but no capital T truth. And that is, and this really kind of evolved from Heidegger and uh, Wittgenstein, and then was involved and migrated up until you get to to Jacques and Derrida and the rest of them. And it's this idea of how knowledge is accumulated. And it does kind of go back to Kant as well. It's this idea, it's not just categories though. It's the idea that knowledge is built, is based upon um, thought forms. It's language games. And the only thing that we can know is how we interpret the world based upon the language that is handed to us, that has ready-made jargon and shortcuts. And that's why Wittgenstein said that philosophy is um, the art of of not using jargons, of being able to explain things in a more fundamental way. And even that is impossible. But anyway, well, yeah. Let me let me share with you guys how nerdy and weird I am. Throughout this whole discussion, throughout the bringing the bat deal, throughout the preserving of life, throughout the whole discussion of the matrix. It only made me think of one thing, and this is how big of a nerd I am, Darth and Dedu, and trying to find out the secret to eternal life. Who? Darth and Dedu. I gave up on Star Wars a while back, so, I mean, I guess this is a... St- <laughs> I'm guessing this is a Star Wars guy, but... but yeah. Darth, Darth yeah. and Dedu. Okay, well, Darth let's hear about Darth. I mean, he, he was, he was, uh, he was, he was a guy that tried to come up with a way where he could live forever and carry on the Sith okay. without it changing into other people. But then, of course, Revan and Malik and everybody else came on the scene. And, but, uh, uh that's just where my brain just automatically so he, he went. He couldn't figure out a way to, keep his body alive permanently so that he could be exactly. And so, and so, and so everyone that he defeated, he put into vats, just like the brain in the vat thing, but he had them whole body and kept them alive and was doing all kinds of experiments on them to see how he could prolong his own life. And, uh, were so his it may, it may, yeah were, were his prisoners aware of their situation? Oh yeah, okay. I mean, they were out of it, but yeah, they they were alive in this 
that thing and uh and then that's where all the whole cloning thing started coming from and so uh yeah my brain just went automatically there <laughs> brain in the vat i'm thinking okay we're going to clone somebody's brain we're, it reminds me of frankenstein man we're going to put this 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 brain that's in this bad in this body and make it do this thing so anyway that's a well, layman's <laughs> jj you said something interesting um you said there is no metaphysical truth that we can know right and so what i interpret from that is you can believe in god you can believe in christ but you will never know how it all works because we're inside, uh, for better words, we're inside the simulation, right? You can't see the code. Like if you take the Matrix, eventually, somehow through magic, Neo was able to see the code physically. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah, he so, perceived metaphysical truth. So he perceived metaphysical truth. It was no longer people and buildings. It was code that represented certain things. Right. We have no way currently to see the code. And, you know, it's not a stretch to say we're in God's simulation. Right. If you think of a simulation, God created the world, he created the universe by certain rules that has worlds, it has people, they follow physical laws, but he created that somehow. There is some code that God used to create everything, and we cannot see what that is. We see the effect of it. So I don't view, you know, simulation theory as anything radical because I don't see it all that different than living in God's universe, if that yeah, makes I mean, it, sense. It could be, and there's, to me, so postmodernism, it encourages play yes because you do not you cannot know metaphysical truth which coincidentally is a metaphysical claim that it makes so <laughs> it, you know you have to take that with a grain of salt but if language prevents us from being able to truly experience capital t truth then why not make up stories why not complete it's what a college student does when they want to divorce themselves from who they used to be and they go to college and they completely reinvent themselves and tell tall tales and try to be someone else they completely play with their identity and a postmodernist will say well that's what you should do with everything there is no truth so have fun with your life have fun with everything where it gets absolutely stupid is when postmodernists will begin to play with words. Mm 
And I actually saw a very serious philosophical discussion start off with a postmodernist comparing the words. Are you ready for this? Go for it. Desert and dessert. Hmm. And I threw the book across the room. What was the relationship? Well, I guess since you threw the book across the room, you never got whatever the relationship was no, that he was trying I to establish. I got two pages into it, and I'm like, this is the stupidest play thing I have ever heard. And I, I threw it across the room. It was just. I don't know, JJ. I like desserts, so I'm good with that conversation. Oh, I love dessert, but I mean. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you ended up on a dessert island, that'd be a whole lot of so, different. So, so hang on, tee that up a little better, JJ. So comparing desert and dessert as in saying it's the same thing, but it's been redefined? What, oh, what no, is they, the... were, they were literally comparing the two words and just they were playing. It was their version of playing, and they were trying to draw a grand point of how play leads you to be able to examine anything and everything and that should be a celebration of life to a point a a radical postmodernist will hold nothing of value everything is a play and that is where the de the, the destructive version of postmodernism comes in and to me it's that's where you run into major issues. Like, even if you can't know a metaphysical truth, you are still in the situation that you are in. You make X amount of money. You work X amount of hours. You have X number of obligations. You will continue to live a life of one way, shape, or form. And just by not knowing a metaphysical truth once again leaves you to Kant's statement of that leaves all the more room for faith. And that is where I began to rope in systematic theologies as a binding structure around that shell of not knowing. That JJ, that that kind of reminds me of uh the followers of Martin Luther that kind of went off the rail and brought hell to everything. Um, that whole postmodernization theory of how they took Luther's words and then twisted them around to their own idea and then brought it to their world of that time and changed their whole theology, so to speak. Would you yeah. agree with that? No, you can definitely interpret it like that. Yeah. So you're saying it was not what Luther said. It was how he was later interpreted. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I would say that, honestly, Luther's own actions, bombastic as they were, would lead and help to encourage such bombastic results to what he wrote. That's so, true too. Uh, I, I'm not saying that either is blameless in this regard, nor do I blame Luther for what started. Um, but yeah, I, I would say it's not just on 
the people that followed after and chose radical interpretations, it was kind of based upon the spirit of what Luther had already laid down. But that's just my my theory. <laughs> no, it, that makes sense too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that the thing you said earlier, which is that because you cannot know the metaphysical truth, the rest is basically irrelevant, so just make crap up. Yeah. That that is problematic to me, right? Just just because I don't know what makes the world work, just because I don't know whether you know this force is created by God or this is how it's influencing the world around, doesn't change basic truths that we experience every day, and whether they be religious truths, spiritual truths, or just physical, I hit my head against this wall, it's going to hurt truths. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? and I completely agree with you on that front. And that's where that's where my dividing line, so I, I agree with a lot of postmodern, postmodernism's philosophical viewpoints up until that point of, pure absolute play that i cannot abide by uh, that does not give you a reason to abandon the world and strip down to your skivvies and do whatever the heck you want to in life okay i uh, <clears throat> i must admit that postmodernism is a thing that's been a very difficult thing for me to learn about and understand um and the word first came to me when I went to architecture school because the big term back then was postmodern architecture. And I can remember asking my professors, uh, okay, uh, what is postmodern architecture? And <clears throat> what's the answer? Crap. Well, once That's again, well, well, there, there, <laughs> there just was no answer. There was no, I'll know it when I see it. Yeah. There was, there was no yeah. answer. It was just, it was just a matter of, well, you know, go look at, uh, you know, uh, Michael Graves, go look at uh, Frank Gehry, go look at, you know, these different people, and you'll know what postmodernism is. And it always made me, as an, look, I was not a popular architecture student. I mean, they really didn't like me. Um, <laughs> I mean, they'd give us these assignments, and I would do really, really, really good work. But I didn't follow their their whole view of things don't mean anything. I, I really wanted to design and build things that were built for people. I mean, one of the things that I really noticed very quickly about postmodern architecture was that it was like they were playing with blocks and there never really was the thought that people are going to be inhabiting this thing. Okay. They were, it was, it was just a matter of, Oh, people, well, yeah, they're uh, necessary inconveniences. But it's not my job to design anything for them. Uh, and see, I I agree with you on that front. Now, if my knowledge of postmodernism, like I first encountered it in art, postmodern art, where you're not painting a representation of an object or an idea or a feeling, but rather you're depicting the very concept of that. And if you have 
skill, you can make something interesting, but usually that is just a bloody excuse for hack artists to just splash paint on the canvas and throw it around and then call this, this is my masterpiece and idiots will buy it. I actually, so in college, I was a part of an honor seminar and they would take us to plays and to museums and everything else to kind of expose us to more, you know, higher pursuits of learning, which I loved. And we went to an art museum and we saw a, a modern and postmodern artist who did just that. He had a painting on display where he literally splashed paint everywhere that there was. And there was on the painting, there were a set of little child footprints running up one side. And he said that while he was doing this, his daughter stepped into paint and then walked across the canvas. And at first, he said he was so angry. But then he took a step back and went, that just adds something to this. And it completed my masterpiece. <laughs> and I have never wanted to get up and punch somebody so hard in my entire life. <laughs> so if I knew postmodernism only from the other fields that it has infiltrated and contaminated, I would hate it just as much as you. <laughs> well, see, I, I think a, a lot of things, if you look at architecture, I mean, the history of architecture is not necessarily, not necessarily the history of seeking meaning it's the history of improving human lives, make, making things better for humans. You know, it's better to live in a building that doesn't leak than to live in a building that does leak. You know, it's better to have a hospital that doesn't transmit disease. You know, all of these things are better. These are real goals. And I can just remember the postmodernist. I worked with a postmodernist a guy who called himself a postmodernist designer. Oh, God, I hated that bastard. Uh, Please, Vic. Sorry. That slipped out. But anyway, we were designing a children's hospital in Louisville. Well, there's only one children's hospital in Louisville, so that's Coast Air Children's. And... It was our firm working in concert with his firm. And the overall project leader came to me and said, Victor, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take you off the design of the ER. We're going to give it to X. And uh, because, you know, his ideas are more innovative than yours. And I said, well, okay, I'll design something else. So I start getting these drawings that X is designing. And he was basing the design of that ER on Voronoi tessellations. Anybody know what a Voronoi Voronoi tessellation is? No, God bless you. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only thing I could even begin to guess at. Okay, no idea. A Voronoi tessellation is a uh, a a genuine. 
phenomenon in nature, but it, it's it's kind of a, a random placement of connections between points. Okay. And so you can you, you can get on your phone and you can download a Voronoi uh, app and you can make some cool looking stuff. But you can't just take that Voronoi tessellation and lay it out as a floor plan and say, this is where we're going to take care of our sickest patients. You know, and, and, and he just insisted that we needed to move away from the idea that buildings needed to work. <laughs> you know, you know. Well, that that what what you just said just proves what I've always thought for my just 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 for my own reasoning. Whenever I hear the word postmodernization and the way it's defined these days, it does nothing to me except remind me of people who want to go about their own daily lives and never have any responsibility for anything. Just like you said about building something that don't work, but that's okay. As long as it looks pretty. Well, I mean, finally, here's, here's what finally happened. I mean, it was a, it didn't look pretty either. It was hideous. Um, I mean, (laughs) human brain, Okay, so here's one of the things I'm going to bring up, and somebody tell me that I'm really stupid for saying. The human brain has a natural tendency to want there to be some kind of order. Okay? If we, if we look at something in nature that's beautifully ordered, say a, a, a bamboo grove, you know, or the way that uh, cliffs form along beaches or these things, our eyes see Oh, that makes sense. I understand why the rock has eroded that way. There's a beauty in order. Yeah, that's that's order. order. There's a beauty in that. And when we get someplace that's just an absolute disaster, you know, in terms of um, the way it's developed, our eyes don't see that as beauty. Unless unless your kid walks across the paint in your canvas and then you say, okay, (laughs) that's that's good. (laughs) I, I, I don't, I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind having a, a, a painting in my own home of my kids' feet walking across this canvas. I just don't want to foist it on anyone else. Well, and, and that's the thing. <clears throat> one of the one of the points that Heidegger was famous for saying was he would talk about the invisible they, mm-hmm. and it was this idea that in a given culture that spoke a certain language you would react and withdraw from things in the exact same way. Or at least it would be informed by the same social concepts, the same linguistic ideas that you have inherited. Uh-huh. And I would, I, I would completely kind of agree with that. But even if you go a little bit deeper into just how our brains are wired. You know, we are inbuilt to recognize faces. Oh, yeah. And as a result, we see faces everywhere. Everywhere. Even where they're not supposed to be. Sorry. No, no, no. But, you know, our brains are wired to see faces everywhere. And that is because we are naturally social creatures. And, like, for example, this is why Wittgenstein said that if you bring a someone who is learning or has learnt English 
they will never truly learn English because they are constantly reinterpreting through the, their native language. And he would call it language games. It's like if you bring, brought someone who had never watched baseball before to an American baseball game and you sat them down and then you they saw that the crowd suddenly started calling for off with the umpire's head. <laughs> yeah. They would have no idea why. <laughs> In fact, I was just watching a TikTok today where it was, hey, we're going to teach the new student uh, how to uh, how to play some American games. And they were trying to explain the idea of hangman. And they're like, yeah, if you don't get all the answers, all the, all the letters filled in, then we're going to hang this theoretical person. And they're like, why? That's so mean. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean, some of that is to the extreme, but that's funny. Okay, I got to do an. He's got to do one of those, whatever it is. You oh, know, the I, David Freeze. Yeah, he did. You know, I I wish I could say, look, I spent a good three months of my life going through the Tractatus. Did what? Tractatus Philosophico, some other word. It's the only. It's it's the big philosophical work of uh, of Ludwig Wittgenstein, and it's a it's a page turner, man. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's his attempt to create this perfect philosophical language as to how you express certain very difficult ideas. Uh, correct, JJ, or at least somewhere in the right ballpark? I mean... Yeah, you're correct. I, I, I have not read it. I have only read the Blue and Brown books, which gave me enough of a, of a taste for him that mm -hmm. I moved on. But <laughs> <laughs> you're smarter than I was. And, and I got I to gotta admit, I came away just with an understanding that, okay, language matters. The language that we're speaking matters. Uh, different languages create different metaphors. Different languages create situations where certain ideas are expressed differently. Look, I got absolutely. Gotta, I, I got to tell you, one of my my abs one of my absolute favorite Star Trek episodes is one that people hate, and that's the one where Picard is on the planet with the guy who only speaks through. Through metaphors, and and he'll say something like, uh, you know, like uh, you know, Jalabra when the door is opened, and you know, so he's he's using this very quick uh, shortcut to talk about an important story in their in their culture, and <clears throat> you know, they're they're down on the planet and they're not going to leave until they kind of understand each other. You, you guys remember that? Episode, or am I the only one who's remembering no. that episode? I'm Vaguely. with you. I'm with you. Father Birdsong remembers that episode, but you know he he. It's a story about a language based upon a collective understanding of stories. Now I don't know how you design a starship. <laughs> you know, without a language for you know something that talks about you know screws and bolts and tension and metal. Fatigue and all that kind of stuff, but I remember that episode. It was very difficult. 
what the, the the episode was difficult. Yeah, it was difficult. It was it was frustrating watching them trying to figure out how to communicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but anyway, it was, it was all social references, right? So, and anyway, that's that's one of my favorite Star Trek episodes. But it was it was kind of getting the idea across that is that people with totally different linguistic backgrounds could find it very very difficult to communicate with each other. Man, that's a silence. <laughs> Have you guys heard about the king who wanted to know what the natural language of man was? No. And he thought that the way that you would find out what the natural language of man was, was to take children who had were newborns and to raise them on an isolated island with no language at all. You know, have people give them food, have people take care of whatever medical necessities they need, give them clothing, keep them warm. But don't nobody says anything to this child ever. There, there's no linguistic input. And, you know, his idea was that after the kids had been on this island for some period of time, then whatever the natural language of man was would evolve. And so he thought it might be Hebrew. He thought it might be, you know, some other some other ancient language like that. Well, what he ended up with was kids who were 100% totally screwed up. You know, they, they, well, they, they really were, they were, they, they were not humans. They were physically human, but mentally they were not, they well, were not. That, like, uh, that reminds me, one of the reasons why I was silent earlier in the awkward sound of silence moment, um, I was I was also thinking of the Borg, yeah, and mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. they will they are going to assimilate everyone, and it goes right into what you're just saying now. They 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 become this. They're 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 still their normal self, but their whole brain and thought process is tied into this one whole collective unit now, mm-hmm. and to the point to where they they they're not thinking about themselves anymore or their own actions, but being controlled by a hive mind, the great thing. Yeah. A higher mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can take that right back to feral children as well. Jenny grew up without language and it never ends well for them. They Hmm. die young. They, it's awful. And I mean, it's yeah. Well, Yeah. And see, that's 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 where I disagree with Billy Joel because, in that case, only only the young die young. I mean, only the good die young. It's not true. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there you go, David. There's another there's another song plug in there. Yeah, it is. Hello. Before we change topics, I just thought I would use some editor producer privilege. To uh, throw in another little piece of information, a little historical story, a little tidbit, just to keep things moving. You know, back in the 13th century, the king of Sicily, Frederick II, he was one incredible idiot. You know what? He, though, he was a, uh, he was a curious idiot. He wanted to know what the natural language of mankind was. So he thought, hmm, let me just take some babies away from their mamas. I'll put them on an island. I'll have mute nurses. 
who can't talk and they can't touch the babies. Yeah, they'll feed the babies with tongs or something. The babies won't have any contact with humans. They won't be contaminated at all. And in a few years, or maybe even sooner, they'll start talking. They may talk Hebrew or Greek or Arabic, I don't know. Whatever it is, though, will be the natural language of mankind. He undertook this experiment, but he never got his answer. The reason he never got his answer was because, of course, the babies, not having any interaction with other human beings, no loving, no cuddling, no touching, no cooing from mothers, no chucking their chin by their fathers. They died. They just failed to thrive. They failed to become human. See, humans can't grow up in a vacuum. We need other humans. We need touch. We need love. The human body, no matter how much nutrition it gets, it simply cannot live without those other things. There was a historian in 1248. His name was uh, Salambini de Adam. He said, like a scientist would say, they could not live without petting. The babies literally died for want of touch. So, I don't know that aligns here perfectly, but I wanted to hear the Blues Brothers elevator music and talk in my cool, hip, alternate voice. So, now back to the Gang of Nerds. All right. So, somebody tell me, since it's time to move on, what happened to Bob Larson? I mean, the first time I became aware of Bob Larson, I bought a book at the Alabama book, what used to be the Alabama Theater, became some big Barnes and Noble in Houston. And I bought a book called The Larson's Book of Cults. And it was a really well-researched book where he had gone through all these different religions that he was calling cults. You know, everything, and you know, you could probably find it. But any, anyway, he seemed at that time to be a, a pretty reasonable, if a little bit bombastic, Protestant, Protestant minister. And then the last time I saw him, that dude's gone crazy. Um, right. <laughs> you know, what, what in the heck happened to him? And what we're talking about here is him charging for exorcisms. Um, where does someone like Bob Larson begin to believe they have the authority to do exorcisms? And what happened between that book and where we stand now? From the get-go, I would say pride. Okay. But it, all, but it also goes back to he got to the point, and I really hate to say this, but Christ said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. Correct, yes. And he got to the point to where he was, he knew that he could possibly or not possibly help mankind. And so he saw, okay, uh, just all of a sudden, I can make a profit off of this. Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, number one, just just pride. He got too prideful. 
he started uh, as St. Paul uh, talks about. Uh, he started thinking of himself more highly than he should. Mm-hmm. And 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 when a man starts thinking that this is my gift to mankind, mm-hmm. things are not going to turn out well. No, first of all, it's not your gift. This is something God has given you to help people and to. I mean, I just, I just hate that with, with everything that is within me, you don't charge people for the gospel of Christ. No. And, and, and that just, that just, uh, that just burns me up. I, I can't, I can't stand it. I can't, uh, uh, he's just wrong. Everything about him now is, Totally and one hundred percent, not Christ. It's about all Him now, and that's the danger that so many fall into a trap these days. It's all about me. Well, no, it's not about you. I mean, the work that I do, the work that I do for the church, it, it, it's not about me. It's about Christ, and I believe Bob has lost that vision. Hey, uh, Father Mike. Yes, sir. Don't don't hold it in. Let out your true emotions. <laughs> <laughs> it just, yeah, you I mean, seem to be holding back a little bit there. Well, JJ, it pisses me off, man. I, I can't. Oh, I can't. I, I completely agree with you. It pisses me off as well. Well, I mean, I, I just you see him also. It's like he's putting on a show. Um, exactly. It's all about a show to him now. And it's been proven, and I've actually seen video footage of them falsifying uh, demonic deliverance. Okay, how how were they doing that? Uh, well, I mean, was, was he like the guy that had the earpiece in? Uh, yeah. Well, no, it's very simple. You get with someone before your quote-unquote crusade begins and say, I want you to start doing this and acting this way, and then I'm going to come up to you, and I'm going to say these words, and and then you're going to be free. Well, but you got to foam with the mouth first and fall down and writhe and make some uh, horrible sounds. Exactly right, and that's, mm-hmm. that's just that's, – that is an abominational BS to the gospel of Christ. I just sent that's, you guys a – a link to the PDF of Larson's book of cults. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, the, the, but I think, I think I need to be quiet right now. <laughs> well, so there's, there's two aspects of this. There, there's two aspects of this that, that Vic asked specifically, right? One is, is what makes him think he can charge? for this right what gives him that right but the second thing you asked victor which i think is a great question is is what makes him think that he has the right to do exorcisms mm-hmm. now i would be interested in father mike's opinion on that but also jj's perspective you know, well my, my, my perspective is this. 
is what you're doing. Okay. Okay. If, if, if you were called to the office of an exorcist, now this is very near and dear to my heart. You are standing on the wall. You are interceding on behalf of God's people. And you are saying, not today, not on my watch. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And, and, and you are putting yourself in a position to free someone who wants to be free from demonic powers. Okay. And that is a ministry of charity or ministry of love. Mm -hmm. And if that is not in your heart, then you have no business and you have no right to do it. Okay. So so that's fair. That's where Bob failed though. That's where he fell. And 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 that and, and see, when you reach that point, I don't care how long you try to quote unquote exercise someone, it's not gonna work because it's falsehood. Right. And to so my take on all and I agree with everything that Father Mike just said, but it goes a little bit further too. You know, if you are truly battling a demonic possessing host you are the exorcist and this is something he knows a heck of a lot more than i do um the exorcist is meant to hide oneself in the holy presence you're supposed to be a pure conduit for god this is not about ego this is not about anything else in fact the you know the exorcist puts himself into severe mortal peril by doing danger absolutely you know not only physical but also spiritual mental emotional everything else under the sun and it's meant to be an act of pure selfish uh, selflessness and what larson has turned this into is a piece of performative theater he has done it for profit he is doing it for fame. He's doing it for all the bloody wrong reasons. And I'm telling you, if he, and he's probably taking requests from anyone and everyone under the sun. You know, an exorcist is supposed to get, you know, physical and, and psychological exams to ensure that they're not messing with any, anyone who is not, who does not need an exorcism. Roll out all other cases before you move to this drastic and extreme step. And he's just probably taking any and all comers, if they can afford to pay for it, then great, I'll take it on. And God help him if he truly runs into a possessed individual. Exactly right. not be a good day for him. Exactly right, because... Because, J.J., I'm with you on this 100% because the exorcist, we are placing ourselves in a position to where we are fighting this demonic force so much that we're on the very edge of accepting it ourselves on behalf of someone else. Wow. That's the way you have to think about it. 
if if that is not your heart, if you are not willing to lay down your life, then you don't need to be an exorcist. That is a uh, okay. that's a very very powerful and somewhat well, frightening, it's, it's, frightening well, statement. Well, I mean, it's, I, it's, it's 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 just like I said a while ago. You are a watchman on this wall, uh-huh. and you are saying no more. And if so, that is not your heart, everything that JJ just said is absolutely one hundred percent correct. So, and so the I danger, totally the, the danger in that though, if it is not your heart, you're placing yourself in a position to be overcome by that demon. Yes, I agree. Um, the The reason I wanted to ask JJ about it is, is because JJ, you've interviewed a handful of people that have come at this from different angles, right? You, you've interviewed a guy who did this, who was a Buddhist, uh-huh. right? You, you've interviewed, uh, you know, will you do yep. this? Um, of course, father bird song. Uh, I know you've been on with the, the Nicolian guys that, mm-hmm. uh, the Bishop there that, that does that. And so you've you've hit this from people from all realms, and so now Larson clearly has gone astray, right? But there are people out there that have that purity of intent, yeah. right? That yeah. their goal is to help people, and they're not charging for it. They, uh, I mean, sometimes they take donations for expenses stuff like that but it's never a whole different story uh, you know that's that's different right they're not saying i won't do this if you don't pay me right Right, they're you know hey it cost me five hundred dollars to get out here have hotel and eat anything you're willing to pay what you know exactly that's that's different and i've had to do that yeah i've had to do that yeah but but it's not something that you would withhold if they weren't able to do it but But, J.J., what's your take on what these folks that you've talked to feel gave them the right to step into that ministry? Because these are not, you know, typical Catholic authorized exorcists. Some of these guys are, it's just, they believe they can do it. No, but... They feel a calling. That's true. And I would say not everyone that I have spoken to has done it for selfless reasons. It is, some have done it out of that pure attraction of the unknowable and of being fascinated with these powers. And that is why they do it. If they can help people, that's great. And they love to do that. But yet it's just that satisfaction of brushing up against something alien. And that is a very dangerous boat to be in. Uh, Others, you know, I think that. that they have done so either through the rigidity of their training or they have lost themselves in in a good way, not a bad way, lost themselves in the authority of whatever religion or church that they happen to belong to. And that, I think, comes from a good place as well. But then again, we can't really 
it's so it's not quite the same thing. But if you look at Japanese and Chinese traditions, where you call in a Shinto priest, a, a Buddhist priest, uh, whoever it may be, to help resolve some major issues that one may have, and you are affected by either a Naroi or a Tachiati, which is a divine curse, you're expected to pay, and you're expected to pay big. And these priests still, you know, it is a danger to them to be in this line of work. But yet, it's a completely separate type of concept where it's expected to pay because that is you showing respect but that's an entirely different cultural connotation. What we're talking about here is different. A exorcist, at least within the Christian faith, is doing so out of charity, of love, of selflessness. And then to pervert that is almost doing the exact opposite it's sending the exact opposite meaning out and that is more dangerous than anything else in my opinion god spoke through the prophet isaiah in a very a very awesome word and he said i wondered why there was not an intercessor and he's speaking of mankind and he's speaking of He's speaking of his creation of those that will stand in the gap for someone else. And see, that's the whole ministry of Christ is standing in the place of mankind, laying down his life for the good of all and saying, I will do this for you. Just as Isaiah said, hear my Lord Send me. That is the place of the exorcist. To, to, as JJ said, out of love, out of charity, out of the very essence. That's the key word. Out of the essence of God himself. In Christ in you. Standing there in helping this person. That's why Christ said when he ascended, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But see, here's the key words. And he said, and these signs shall follow those who believe. They shall lay hands on the sick. They shall cast out demons. They will cleanse the lepers. They will do all these great things. But it's because of who Christ is in you, not for fame and fortune. Now, Definitely. now, on the other side of the coin is the labor worth his wages. Yes, that. But see, that's a whole different story. Uh, does someone need help traveling? Yeah, that's a whole different story. But if someone can't help you, are you going to deny them help? Well, no. Right. And see, that's the point. And he, Bob, has gotten to the point, hey, I'm going to start charging people for this. I don't care if they're demon-possessed or not. I'm going to go say this prayer over them 
even though they're suffering from a mental illness and make them feel good for five minutes. And then the rest of their life, they're in worse shape than they were before I got there. And that's the seriousness part of it. So, so one last question on it. Okay. And, and you've talked about this case on JJ's podcast, but do you think there is an opportunity for someone like Paula with the right heart, the right intent, the right goal of helping people to perform exorcisms? Talking about Paula herself? If she has the right intent. Now, obviously, okay, there okay. has I, to be some training. You get what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so this this started with Vic saying, "What I'm with what gives him the right to say he can do exorcisms?" Okay. And we've all said if they're if they're doing it for fame, fortune, ego, money, right? No, they they don't have the right. Okay. But what about somebody who just wants to help? Okay. Well, I I will put it to you this way. Uh, in one of the parables of Christ, um, DJ, I may need your help. Um, the king has asked everyone to go out and bring people to his feast. And many did not come. As a matter of fact, they beat his son and, uh, destroyed him but at the very ending of the parable christ says for many are called now keep that in mind many are called but few are chosen and there's a distinct difference between being called and chosen to be to be called to do something is one thing to be chosen to do it is a whole nother because you have obtained that right through order and through discipline and through training and through example, word, deed. Does that make sense to you? Uh-huh. And so and so if if someone is not in order, they're in chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, so to say, uh, what gives them a right? Okay. Well, then you have to ask yourself or you have to think about it this way. Is that is number one, is that person in order? Is that person under authority? That's one thing. Well, those are two different things. Well, n- not exactly because, because, because if you're if you're if you if you're not under authority, you're not in order. You're in chaos. That's what gives someone a right to do something. I might be I might be I might be called to do this, but am I in order? Is my life in order? Is my intent in order? Is my relationship with God in order? Uh, JJ mentioned this. 
but I'll, I'll put it in a scriptural point of view. In the book of Psalms, it asks the question, who, ascend, who may ascend into the holy hill of the Lord? Those with the clean hands and a pure heart. Okay, what is my intention? My intention and my actions speak of what type of order I'm in or in chaos. But you, you can't have order and you can't have giftings without being under authority. And the so, ultimate... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, well, I guess ultimate, the ultimate authority could could be God. I mean, one of the... Exactly, exactly. One of the things but, but that see, I can remember see, Malachi Martin see, talking... God, God exhibits order, mm-hmm. not chaos. Correct. And that's what we got to remember. So I can see a scenario where Bob starts out with a very religious zeal. Yes. Right? And has a deep faith and a deep understanding of the Bible and potentially how to perform something like a deliverance. Mm -hmm. Right? And through no order of any other organization other than his feeling that he is called by God, and he has this knowledge, he's thought about it, he feels like this is what God wants him to do, and thus he starts a deliverance ministry. And I see nothing wrong with that. I think that if that's how it started, it probably got twisted. Exactly, because right, in to the, what it is today. In the beginning, Bob was under order. He was under authority. He submitted himself to to people that would counsel him, that would guide him, that would mentor him. And then, unfortunately, Bob became too big for his pants, as we say in the South. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. And I it's very that possible that and that's easy. That's doing easy. the deliverance ministry, he came under the influence of something that pushed him in that direction. Yeah, that is a very well. definite possibility. Exactly. That's very good point there. Very good uh, point. Let me just say one last thing, and then I know Victor wants to say something. Um, it's that point of authority which is the sticking point. And that's because Always. exercising a demon is not something a person can ever do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It takes an entire exactly. community of faith in order at least according to the Roman Catholic way of looking at it, and then other, you know, kind of traditions that follow along with that same pattern of thought. I agree. You have to be under the authority of the church. In yes. fact, according to, to Catholic law, McCannon, if you are outside the authority of the church, unless you're talking about a exorcism of location, which is not nearly yeah. as high of a gambit, that it is guaranteed to fail. It's just, it can never work. Unless it's exactly. the blessing of the church, then you are outside. But even just outside of that religious tradition, you are, 
you're standing in the shadow of God, and that is your power in order to affect a being that is infinitely more powerful than you ever hoped to be. That's the exactly only right. lifeline that you've got. And exactly. if you step out of that for one second, then your, your butt is toast. As the clear Protestant of the group, I disagree. <laughs> wow. But I understand the Catholic perspective. And yeah, that's why I asked the question. That, that is the only way to look at it. I'm just saying this is the way Catholicism lays it out. So, and yeah, I yield my time to Victor. Only- <laughs> <laughs> yield my time to Victor. Well, I was just going to say that I, I've listened to gobs of interviews with Malachi Martin. He gave quite a few interviews. I mean, he spent all the time with Art Bell. He spent a guy time with a guy named Jansen. Oh, um, yeah. And the, yeah. the Jansen interviews, actually, in my view, are probably more valuable than the Bell interviews because he didn't feel like he needed to entertain people. Okay, when you're on the... Art Bell show, yeah, it's kind of expected you're going to be entertaining. This was just a, a conversation between fellow religious intellectuals. And um, <clears throat> he said that he had been aware of people of other religious traditions that seemed to have the approval of God to do this kind of thing, to, to go out there and try and eliminate demons from, from people. Um, he didn't. He said he didn't quite know what the mechanism was, but he did talk about the fact that there were probably legitimate non-Catholic exorcists, um, and mm-hmm. that's about where he left it. Well, one of one of the things that I would love to see happen, and and I know it, I know it will not happen in my lifetime. We have got to get beyond the Catholic versus Protestant idea. And, and, and the reason why I say that, and just, just indulge me for just a moment. Take we're all, all the time Cat- you need. We're, we're all Catholic. We're just not all Roman Catholic. Fair enough. Now, I want you to think about that. Damn, just fighting words, boy. No. <laughs> I mean, but but no. But, I've spent much see, time thinking about that. I agree with you. Yeah, and and but but how? I kind of sound like a hypocrite because I'm going to say, however, however, the we can't deny the works of the early church fathers. Correct. We can't deny the right of exorcism that's been in place forever. When 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 I do an exorcism, I use the Roman right. Why? Uh-huh. Because it's effective. It's, yes. But because because it's been there. Uh-huh. It's been proven. It's it's historical it is now do you have to follow it to a t no but it is a great roadmap and and we can't deny that that rich historical faith now uh has the roman catholic church messed up at times yes 
Has the Protestant churches messed up at times? Yes. So let's just get over ourselves and let's forget about the Catholic and Protestant words. Uh-huh. Well, we're, you, make, we're, you make a fantastic point. I mean, these are we are dealing with things that we cannot know, we do not know. And yeah. In fact, the only information that we have about it is either from Holy Writs or they are straight from the enemy's mouth, and we can't trust a single bloody thing in which we hear from that. 100%. Yes. What do you do? Exactly. We have this rich tradition in which yes. tells us this is effective, and I think it's been proven that it's effective. Exactly. Does it strip away an exorcist humanity? Does it no. leave them absolutely vulnerable and can leave them broken? Yes, no. absolutely. But yet it works. Is that the only way that works? I would say absolutely not. But it is what we it know. It is one reliable way of going about that. Right. One of the, I'll tell you the thing. One of the things in life that scares me the most, and it's just me, it causes a real tightening of my chest and a, almost an existential kind of fear. And that is taking on something difficult that's important to other people and then finding out at some point that I just don't, I am a not qualified. And like they say in uh, Kenner, I just don't have the poop. You know, I don't have the ability to do what I've taken on. That's, Who is qualified? Well, that's the, that's the, that's the question. I mean, that would be, that would be my incredible fear. If I were ever going to be in the position of an exorcist, you know, I, I would just the fear would be that I would make things worse than they already were. Well, the truth be known, Vic, I, I'm not qualified. I'm just as human as you are. Mm -hmm. I just happen to be one of those people that God said, "Okay, I want you to do this," mm -hmm. and I just happen to say, "Okay." And 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 one and one of the biggest lessons that I had to learn personally in the early years and I've never shared this with you guys, was to realize that I'm nothing. And until I got to the point to where I realized that Michael Smith Bertone Jr. was nothing, that's when God was able to work. I get that. Well, what's the, um, the psychological effect of you never know how much you simply do not know. Forgive the double negative there. Yeah, of course. Right. You, yes. It is, it is, it is, JJ, it is terrifying. Oh, that's, and that's, that's the, the, I'm that's a the only words I can say. So, yeah. If it's I don't, terrifying. like, I, I have to give public speeches all the time, I have to leave presentations, and I practice this crap time in and time out. Even when I do a podcast episode, I write a six-page script. Yes, I am an extemporaneous, I'm someone very good at extemporaneous speaking, but I still write a bloody script to make sure I get everything out that I want to. So well, the idea that I walk into something that I can't handle, that terrifies me as well. And then you put human lives at stake to, to make it even more complicated. I'm I'm right there with you, Vic. That that is one of my absolute worst case scenarios. Well, I, I I've uh I've uh, got a 
tell you guys, I mean, uh, I guess this is honesty time. Uh, there's times that I walk into these things to like, I'm like, uh, you know, I take it to the point to where I'm so serious that I got this person's life in my hands. Uh-huh. That's the outlook that I, that's how I view it. Okay. And it is, it is absolutely terrifying. And, and the, the effect that this can have on someone is, it, it can be devastating. I mean, it can be, it can be terrible. Uh, well, David, uh, uh, Paula, for instance, remember the dolls? Mm-hmm. Sure. I'm not, I, I am not too certain that she had dolls for me and my family. Yeah. You mentioned that. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, but that is, that is a case in point that you got to be willing to, well, you got to be willing to accept that part. You got to be willing to accept the good with the bad. Well, I mean, because one yeah, just almost ahead. axiomatically has to think that, look, I'm a priest. I have the approval of my, of my faith. I have the imprimatur of the church to go and try and deal with the situation, try and help. I'm taking a lot of risk. You can only assume that the possessing entity is going to say, okay, that's my enemy and I'm going to attack him too. Exactly right. You know, I'm going to attack him with everything yeah. I've got. And he's, he's more of the threat than the thing, than the woman I'm possessing now. So that's where I'm going to send, definitely. spend my energy. And say, yeah. that's, that is what's so dangerous for Bob right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I believe yeah. he has lost focus on that fact. Every once in a while, you'll run into, well, there's one in Dallas that happened not too long ago. You'll run into someone who becomes a surgeon, a physician who becomes a surgeon. And they are just absolutely not qualified to do the surgeries that they're trying to do. And and they can do some incredibly horrible harm. Dr. Death. Dr. Death. That's what you, you know who I'm Perfect talking about. example. Yeah. yeah, Dr. Death. He's the, uh, I don't remember, what was his name? I don't remember. It's a short name, like Minch or Finch or something like yeah. Munch or something. Anyway, he he was essentially decapitating people. He did. He had no idea about how to do the surgeries that he was asked to do, and left a string of horribly mutilated people. Wow. And um, Dave, is he still in jail? I, you know, uh, I don't. I don't remember. Uh, Dunch. Dunch, yeah. Dunch. Christopher Dunch. Uh, I, I, I was pretty I close. I listened to like the first two seasons of mm-hmm. this podcast, and uh, and they made a television show out of it, too. We watched some of that, but it is uh, it's terrifying that not only was he able to do the damage that he was able to do, but that the healthcare system let him continue, continue doing it by uh-huh. swapping hospitals and his ego 
appeared, I mean, there really appeared to be a psychological problem there. That oh, his yeah. ego just let him keep going, well, I've got it now. I'll get it right this time. And he just left a trail of bodies. It was horrible. Yeah, very, very horrible. I mean, I'll go back to what Father Birdsong was saying, you know, of it wasn't until I, it wasn't until I determined that I was nothing. I, I mean, the, the, the human ego in me objects to the word nothing in that what you're really saying is, I am nothing more than what God makes me. Yes. Okay. I, I, I have to be, I have to let myself go and be whatever it is that God guides me to be. Uh, that's my only chance. Yeah. Uh, at least I think I kind of got that right. No, right, right. Absolutely. I, Guys, I guess I, I am fading fast. Fair, fair enough. I, 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 I know people are, but man, I just feel like I'm, you know, made of fire right now. <laughs> well, and this is all topic near and dear to my heart. One of the reasons it's so important is this is a big thing in the paranormal community right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the trainings, the online trainings, the in-person classes, there's a lot of people going down these paths. And I think one of the things that's missing out of all of that is not necessarily the intent to help people, but it's what Vic just said, the realization that they are nothing more than the hand of God in this situation. Yeah. God is working yeah. through them to accomplish this goal. It has nothing to do with their own power and ability. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. And that is where they get lost, and they don't last long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's my last bit Absolutely. on it, JJ. Last bit on it. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Uh we are we are foursome. If one of us is falling out, it's probably time to uh, call it quits. I think this was a uh, a really good recording session. Oh, yeah. I do too. I, I loved every great. bit of it. Absolutely. It was a really, really good recording session. I'm happy, Father Birdsong, to see you looking strong. Yeah. <laughs> good day today. Yeah, yeah. I, re- I really am. I'm glad to see the smile back. I'm glad to see the, the, <laughs> the fire in the eyes. Uh, Amen. You know, JJ, same with you. I mean, uh, you've been, you were great tonight. Uh, I got to be more quiet than usual. Well, well hey, just, you know, I did my hair right before the episode. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm really glad. <laughs> I noticed you got the beard starting to fill in too. Yeah. Is, is yeah. that a fall thing? Cold weather, cold weather comes in, and cold. boy, I get, just get I that, go full. I am the same way. Full full my wife hates it. I'm just waiting for JJ to but get But it looks good, JJ. Brace. I like it. Say it again. All right. Um, hey, one last thing. I, this was this – was, the discussion tonight was great because you guys got really deep into the philosophy, and that is literally one of the categories we're published under. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's true. So, yeah. We, I think it's, it's really, really good for that. We really hit philosophy tonight. All right. Well, um, I guess I will say this has been a great paranormal rundown. I'm pretty tired myself, but it sure was fun. Absolutely. Oh, it was. 
Absolutely. Sure was a good fun. night with friends talking about stuff that you rarely get to bring up in normal conversations or everyday life. And that's what we're all about. Hello again. This is the alternate, cool, hip version of Vicar Manson. So it's about time to bring the paranormal rundown to an end. It was a real winner tonight, I think. Maybe the best we've ever had. The Paranormal Rundown is a joint production of Vicar Manson, J.J. Johnson, Dave Griffith, and Father Michael Birdsong. Any of the music you heard tonight was either by Lobo Loco, Smart Sound, or was simply in the public domain. Any media clips used were used under the protection of the Fair Use Doctrine. You know, he would really make the gang of nerds happy to hear from you. So write to us, please, at feedback at paranormalrundown.com. Ah, it's just nothing like having this cool, hip voice. Just makes you feel like you're a beatnik. You know, we've got Girl from Eponema going on back there. It's just awesome. It's so awesome, I think, that as I fade the music out to say goodnight, I think I'll bring us back for a little, little dungeon talk. We need some dungeon talk, don't you think? Okie dokie. Good night. From Vic Hermanson and the rest of the gang of nerds from the Paranormal Rundown. Now, maybe you can find your cool, hip, awesome voice too. Everybody's got one. Good night. Yeah. Uh, can I read something to you guys right quick? I'm listening. All right. Just uh, I I I just wanted to to, to give you guys some comfort right quick. And uh, whether we realize it or not, we we hit on JJ's t- subject of refilling your faith there for a little bit. Yes, we did. But I wanted to read this to you um, when I was thinking about the show today. And if we went on this subject, this was so, just something that I wanted to read to you guys. And it's, and it's from the book of Psalms 73. And it was written by Asaph, who was the... Uh, uh, the, the, the man of worship. Okay. But, uh, he was, he was having a very hard day and he was wondering why everything and everyone in the world that seemed quote unquote evil was doing good. But while the people of God were suffering, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, that's a fair question. It is fair question. It's a fair question. But he said, and this is start. This starts in thirteen. The whole chapter is good, but in in verse thirteen, he says, "Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments." You ever felt that way? Oh yes. And and if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. 
Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? And and that really spoke to me today when I was thinking about when and, and when I was thinking about JJ's subject about the refilling of faith because that's what this guy, that's what he experienced. Mm-hmm. He he had his bad day. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. He questioned God. There's nothing wrong with that. He had his, he, he, but he, but the thing about it is, is he gained an answer. Mm-hmm. And that's what it all boils down to. He, the, 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 the key thing in that whole verse until I entered the sanctuary of God, when he made up his mind, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to pay attention to what everybody's saying to me. You know, I'm not going to pay attention to all the naysayers. I'm not going to pay attention to all the BS going on in the world. I'm going to seek God. Uh And that's when he found his true peace. He got his refilling of faith in which JJ was talking about in our last episode. That's just my take. That's a good take. I didn't mean to bring JJ down. <laughs> no, Josh, Josh was tearing up, but but see, but see that that Vic, that's something that we don't we don't we don't we really don't need to shy away from that, and we really don't need to be ashamed of it because uh, I mean, I, I think I was talking to David today about. One of the great things about us is we're not afraid to touch on those hard subjects. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and we're not ashamed to. Well, my God, man, you had me crying like a baby in one of our latest episodes when I was talking about my dad not too long ago. Mm. But uh, uh, yeah, we'll blame it on Vic. And. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, but, I'm used to I'm used to that. <laughs> it's just, I sort of generally assume it's my fault anyway. <laughs> no, but no, but 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 seriously, guys. I mean, really being really serious about this. There's nothing wrong with that, and and you know, we got we got the we got the comedy part, but also we're not afraid of getting serious when we need to get serious. And if one of us chokes up, so be it. We're human. You know, that's who we are. If, if one of us, you know, we were like, okay, uh, we need to move on. That's okay. Let's move on. No big deal. But some things like this, it not only needs to be answered and dealt with, but it deserves to be answered and dealt with. Well, I think that is part of the uniqueness of the show is that exactly. it's not just 100% lighthearted, touch on the edge of a topic type content. Um, oh, no. But I mean, we the, also the, don't want, you know, two hours of. We don't want two hours no, of glue. You know, no, uh-uh. no, the, no, no. The four no, of us I crying. Agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. So, so. I say we discuss whatever in the world brain in the vat is. That seems kind of interesting to me. Well, I, I don't know. Well, 
brain like in the, a vat. Brain in a vat. Well, I can, when JJ gets back, we'll we'll do the brain in the vat. Yeah. And then and I think I'd like there. to talk about Bob. Well, see, the thing is, I can't get in my mind avatars and Malachi Martin. I, I just can't get in my mind how the two how the two fit together. I think it'd be hilarious. <laughs> so my bet is is that we could start with Brain in a Vat, hit avatars to Malachi Martin, and that could probably lead us right into charging for exorcisms. True, true. <laughs> I, what, man, that subject, it, I mean, that, that one, that burns me up. I mean, that's just really... That takes me to a place where I don't even want to go. How dare you charge for something? That like makes that. you experience emotions that you don't don't like to experience. Uh, it, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It makes me want to say things I don't want to say. Mm. I can't. Mm-mm. 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 I mean, that would be <laughs> that, that would be like Christ saying, "You want to be well? Give me five dollars. Give me, give me a yeah, get any money on you." <laughs> Any money, any money on you? Give me five dollars. No, I'm, what I'm what I'm thinking about is the, um, you know, like a a confessional where you got to put a dollar in the slot before the door opens. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> you know, and and then just you know just keep the metaphor going. Like, huh? Well, okay. Um, do you want the five dollar penance or the twenty dollar penance? Yeah. And. <laughs> You got Josh choking over there right now. <laughs> you know, you know, it's a five dollar penance. It's really serious. Twenty dollar penance. Ah, half a hail mary, you're done. But <laughs> there you go. I, I, I like. I don't know. I kind of liked where where Father Mike was going. You know, Jesus gets to Lazarus's tomb and he's like, yeah. "Okay, who's buying me dinner?" There you go. <laughs> right. And I don't want no McDonald's. All right. No, no, no. I mean, no, no. I'm talking steak, nice bottle of Chianti. There you right? go. I want a Caesar salad, and you know, maybe some tiramisu for dessert. So who, who's in? Go. All right, yeah. yeah, I'll go get him. Fine, I'll go get him. Okay. <laughs> I'm back. Oh, oh, JJ walked uh, out too soon. Too soon now. <laughs> There's JJ oh, again. Yeah. JJ, they're cutting up now. <laughs> JJ, you okay? Oh, Victor, how could you do this to me? <laughs> <laughs> just joking, just joking. Damn that, Victor. <laughs> uh, you know, Vic, I heard you can buy your way to salvation if you buy one of Joel Stein's books. Oh, God. <laughs> I used to work for... The phallic cl- I used to work for an architecture firm in Houston called FKP, the Phallic, phallic Klein Partnership. And our office was right across the street from the summit. And the summit used to be where the Rockets played basketball. <clears throat> now it's where Joel Osteen has his church. Oh, my. <laughs> I, I'm not going there. Big place. I'm telling you, I mean, you, you, you could you could get, you know, 20,000 people in there for a basketball game. You have season tickets there, Vic? To the summit? No, I never. To I see Joel? Oh, to see Joel. <laughs> <sighs> you buy by 11-step book, and you can smile as much as me. 
I, I, would, occasionally, I, would, I would occasionally go see Ed Young, who was the... I don't even know the name. Ed Young was the, the pastor of the Second Baptist Church there in Houston, uh, which was another huge church. But I think Ed Young's an honorable kind of man. Okay, now... I don't think I've ever heard of a second Baptist church. I, you're going always the first Baptist church. So, you're so how bad does your preacher got to be for you to accept the term second Baptist church? And better yet, is there one so bad that there's a third Baptist church? <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> well, the second Baptist church was, I know you don't, if you don't know Houston, then like it doesn't mean anything. But it was at the corner of um, Voss and Westheimer, two big streets there in Houston, outside of downtown. And it was a campus. I mean, it, it probably covered 20 acres. You know, big, huge, massive, massive uh, sanctuary, uh, medical clinics, schools, bowling alleys, uh, just, you know, food banks, you name it. It was huge. I don't know how many parishioners there were there or how many, how many members of the church, but it got to be such a big deal that they had to build another church out in the west side of town, out in Katy. And Ed Young would do the services Sunday morning at the main church, get on a helicopter, head out to the Katy church, do the services there, get back on his helicopter, come back. So he, he would do this helicopter trip between these two churches three times on every Sunday. That's a big church. It's a big church. 